Angus Young, how you doing? Good, Becca. The Offspring. How's it going, Becca? Dave Grohl, how you going, mate? Good, man. Pete, it's been a long time coming. Oh, Becca, hasn't it indeed? We go inside the dressing room, speak to the biggest names in music. Keith Richards, the Rolling Stones. And crack open their esky. This is exactly how I imagined you, by the way, sitting opposite me with a vodka and orange. You're a discerning chap. This is the rider. Hey, it's Becky. Welcome back to the rider. Well, uh, breaking news didn't win Powerball, uh, but congratulations to those who do. Uh, for the rest of us, well, uh, back to the drawing board. Uh, last week on the rider, it was Jim Kerr from Simple Minds, and I've spoken to him a few times over the last well, ten years or so. He is a brilliant chat, and you can really tell he's excited about this new project. Uh, they've got the new album out, and he opens up on this podcast about his friendship with Michael Hutchins and. The amount of times they hung out and how down to earth he was. It, was. it was really good to get that perspective from Jim Kerr. Make sure you catch up on that podcast right now on all platforms. And I can tell you, next week on the podcast, in excess producer and genius when it comes to Aussie pub rock, the guy who molded so many great, iconic Aussie albums uh, throughout the 70s and the 80s. I'm talking about Mark Opitz next week on The Rider. But this week... Sarah McLeod from the Super Jesus. You might have heard last week they have announced they've got a brand new album coming out next year. But I was reflecting on my teenage years listening to Super Jesus. I realised how many great songs they had that were throughout those very important years of my life. You know, the late teens into the early 20s. And lately, Sarah McLeod has also had some incredible solo songs like this one. And also, Sarah was very cool throughout the pandemic. She was locked in like everyone else and playing music, doing covers, doing requests, and then hitting the road when she could, certainly a a few months later on. Uh, I've got her on Zoom from Brisbane on a bit of a break between different legs of her tour. Sarah McLeod, how are you? Yo, Chris Beckhouse, darling, hi. It's so good <laughs> to see you. We only caught up just a, well, about a month ago at Monday, Monday. That's pretty exciting. It was an incredible day, incredible weekend. And that was great, wasn't it? I feel like that was like a year ago. So much has happened since then, but that was, yeah, that was an experience. It was good to see you out there. It, it was amazing. I mean, I remember there was one moment where we were kicking back, listening to Midnight Oil um, by a log fire, and it was the, yeah. it was the romance <laughs> of the outback, you know? <laughs> How good is it in those bound to be backstage in those environments when you sit by an open fire? Mind you, I did walk out into the audience a few times and they've they've got it just as snugly out there. They've all got their tents and fires and everyone's like mates with each other and they walk around from camp to camp and hook up with each other and swap Vegemite and butter and people were giving me drinks and I was like, hey, thanks a lot. Hey, you can have this. I've got one too many. Take this Jack Daniels. I don't drink it. Oh, you got a brick lane. I'll take it. It was a cute, cute scene out there. <laughs> it was actually, yeah, it was actually a nice vibe. It wasn't a crazy um, sort of scene like when you go to Bathurst up the top of the mountain, which is a whole different ball game. But it was actually a nice crowd. And um, I yeah, wanna, it is a nice crowd. I noticed yeah. that last year as well. There's something about the audiences that go there. I think because they have put in such an effort to get there that they respect the land, they respect each other, they're there for a good time, and they're there to look after each other. And it's, it's a totally different scene to most rock festivals. I think just because they have to work so hard to get there. Do you have to take a breath right now? Because you just supported Kiss. How good is that? <laughs> yeah, that was fun. It was fun being in a stadium. Like, I've done 
I've done large outdoor festivals, but I haven't played in a stadium since when we first started and we toured with Bush. Haven't been in a stadium since. And so it's like huge crowd, but all indoors and, you know, up levels looking at you and lighting and, you know, we could like throw to the back and go, you up the back. And, you know, people would scream up the back and the follow spot would go over there. And I was doing it all around the stadium. Like, this is great. Oh, my God. It was a trip. Oh, it would be. And also just to be there for an iconic band, wrapping things up and it's the never-ending totally. farewell tour, but, but we love them for that. And they're the great stadium rock band. It must have been cool to kind of stand side of stage for a bit and maybe check it out. Yeah, do you know what was actually the most fun was at Soundcheck and walking around and looking at all their guitars and everything. Like we were trying to sort of not look like we were snooping, but we were like, quick, get a photo of that. Quick, <laughs> quick, write down that serial number. It's like that. It was the same with Midnight Oil when we were backstage there in Monday Monday. Like, you know, I was checking out, you know, Rob Hurst drum, drum kit and the whole setup and, you know, everything, totally. everything's on there on the riser, ready to go. And I was just like, wow, there's a bit of history right there too. I know. If you like, if you really dig a band, then the band's gear is just as exciting as the band itself. Ever had, ever had a moment, you know, getting excited for a band you're supporting and had a moment where you go, I, I'm actually really nervous about it because I don't want to meet my idols, you know, because you, you're always worried that they're going to be assholes or whatever. I think um, I think our bass player Ruddy had a bit of that on the Kiss show because he's a huge Kiss fan. Like, I mean, I like Kiss, but you know, you know, I'd sort of take or leave them. But Ruddy loves them, and um, the, I think he was a little bit like he was a bit nervous about meeting them. He was a bit apprehensive about meeting them. Whereas I was like, "Hey, how's it going? I'm Sarah." Because I I didn't really care either way. I thought if they just ignore me, I'll be like, "Whatever, <laughs> moving on." Um, but yeah, I've I've never seen him so trepidatious around a band before it was it was cute but they were lovely to us thank god what's well, really good and i love loving those stories and and um yeah it's sort of it's kind of nice when you see the band um you know hanging out backstage and actually being a team like i saw that with john stevens's guys after their show at monday monday they just sat down to a meal after the show together there was <laughs> no lead singer syndrome where he's off in his private room or whatever they sat down yeah. together with the crew yeah. and all their, you know, guitar techs and stuff and they just hung out and it was nice, so nice to see. Yeah, that, it's nice. I, I do agree, um, especially with John's band. They, I toured with them recently and they are all just lovely. Like I adore all of them. They're such a nice group of dudes, really fun to tour with. Uh, and no no egos, you know. No one's, no one's got any hang-ups. They're just cool dudes who just want to have a good time. <laughs> Yeah, I could tell. I could tell. Yeah, they, they were really just a, a good a good bunch of guys, and and uh, and look, you know, they at other festivals you, you you see different. You see, um, you know, bands turn up in in separate cars, and they have a cordoned off area, and they don't mix with the crew, and that's fine, mm. you know. But you do see a bit of both at those kind of things. Yeah, so. I think it depends on how long you've been a band for. You know, if you've yeah. got sort of relatively new members, it's fun for a while. And, um, you know, once you've been a band for like 10 or 20 years, people start going, all right, uh, I might have this room over here and you <laughs> you guys can sit over there. But um, I know we get a bit like that. But like John's guys, they're, they're pretty good because I think, you know, like he, he tours with Noiseworks and then he can put his sort of solo band together. So um, he can sort of pick who he wants to be in the band. Like Tim Henwood from the Super Jesus. Yes. Um, who used to be in the Super Jesus is in John's band now. Yeah, because I, I was looking at him going, I think that's Tim Henwood, but I, 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 I sort of I was from a distance, and I was like, I don't know if it's just another guy with the same hair. But uh, the, yeah, there you go. 
Yeah. Oh, how can you miss him? It can't be another guy with the same hair. He's got and, that Mark yeah. McKenzie from Divinals vibe. Yes, he does. And he's, he's yeah. been in a whole bunch of bands and, you know, was, was he in um, Rogue Traders or, or am I imagining that? Yeah, I think he's still in Rogue Traders. Oh, that's that's epic. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they're a cool band, Rogue Traders. Yeah, he's done a lot. He's just one of those guys that just gets in there and works, you know. I'm kind of like that. We're just obsessed with working. We live to work. Now, I can't believe you moved to Brisbane because, um, you know, you always seem to be a, a Sydney-Melbourne chick who grew up in Adelaide. Um, <laughs> Brisbane was the last place I would ever see you move to, but in the middle of COVID, you bought an apartment, moved up. I did. Um, and I, I love it here, though. Like, I do have itchy feet. I've got a bit of a gypsy soul. I move a lot. Uh, I can never really stay in the same place too long. But I came up here um, just, yeah, in the middle of COVID. I bought an apartment up here. And I, I love it. I'm, I mean, I'm... I've got to be honest. I've hardly been here since I since I moved here. I've been here for probably about six months, and that was a couple of years ago. But um, you know, when I am here, it's great. Like I just walked in the door tonight. I'm like, oh yeah, I'm home. I get to stay home for one week. It's amazing. I'm so excited. But I've got so much to do. So you know, that week gets chewed up pretty quick. Then I'm off on tour again. We well, got a cool setup Boom. there as well. You got all the guitars on the, on the wall. You got your little uh, baby grand as well, and and. It's um, yeah. all of that in an apartment. I mean, it's insane. I know. I pack a lot in here. Yeah. Look at that. There's your baby got, grand. Yeah, look at this. I've, I've got this. Um, this is not mine. You can't. You guys can't see this, but I'll show you, Becca. Yeah. Look at this yeah. guitar. This is not mine, but I'm looking after it for, for um, Cav from Eskimo Joe. Oh, that's so cool. <laughs> I think I've seen that guitar it's, in a recent photo shoot he's done. I'm just, I, I know that guitar. It's fucking, apparently it's worth a fortune. It's like a 1952 Gibson. Oh, And man. I picked it up straight away. I could play Johnny Be Good. I was like, whoa. Oh. <laughs> Is it cool though? Like it's, it's amazing how you get guitars. Obviously. I'm not a good guitarist, but, you know, those guitars just create a certain sound. And, and as you said, you can do Johnny Be Good and nail yeah, it. straight away. Yeah, it's got a real 50 sound. So it made, made me want to play. It's actually making me want to rearrange all the furniture. I'm going to put the piano out here in the lounge room and I'm going to put the lounge room in the studio so I can sit in there and, shut the doors and be soundproof and crank up the amps. And the piano has a, um, a silent option so I can make it quiet and sit out here and practice and look at the lights. <laughs> that's my plan for this week. In that oh. one week I have home, I'm going to rearrange everything. That's so cool. I decided and this on the plan. <laughs> now, as a guitarist, do you have a sort of a um, – obviously you've got an attachment to your guitars, but do you sort of um, – when you pick up one, does it straight away transform you to a certain place with each guitar? Like you just – Either where you yep. first played it or your favourite song you play on it or whatever? Um, I'm weird with the guitars because I'm, I'm sort of not a really attached to, to many of them. I just kind of play them to accompany myself, but I have one in particular and it was the first electric I ever bought and it's my brown Gibson SG and there is just something about it. It's magic. Like, I didn't know what I was doing when I bought it. I just went, oh, that looks good. It was the first – I didn't know anything about guitars and since then – I've tried to replicate it. I've I found out what year it was, what what model, and I have I've bought five other SGs since then, trying to find another one exactly the same. And they never are. They're never the same, and I can't work out why. And I keep I buy them. I go, no, it's not it. So I'll sell it, get another one. No, that's not right. Sell it, get another one. And then I started keeping them. I was like, I might as well hang on to them. But then I don't play them. I just like that one shitty brown one. There's just something about it. I fucking love it. And then you hear about you know the the, the pros who get them completely rebuilt and um um built to a certain spec and and now I kind of understand you know it's it's the same guitar but it's so hard to recreate that sound obviously 
without. Yeah, there's something about like the certain wood or the density of the wood or the placings of the pickups. I I don't know. I don't. It's it's a magic thing. Like I wish I could get that guitar completely replicated verbatim. I'd love to because I love it, but I don't know how you do that. But I've been I've been butchering guitars of late. I've been um, building with this other dude. I've been building um, like as this sort of beast that I've been working on that plays bass and guitar at the same time. I think, did you see me do that when I was at Monday Monday? Yeah. Now, yeah, I played bass and guitar at the same time. Oh, so, no, no, so got, this is like the guy from Royal Blood does the same thing. He's, he, he's managed to play, you know, both off one guitar, although I think he plays off bass, yeah. but, yeah, it's insane. He plays off bass, yeah. I play mine off guitar, but I play bass off the guitar. Wow. And um, and I've just had a, a I've just had another one built because I just bought home today. I haven't tested it yet, and it's got – all, everything I need inside the guitar now. So I don't even need any external pedals. So I could just grab it and walk up to two amps anywhere and plug one into a Marshall, one into a bass and play, and it would work. Wow. That's – Yes, my new thing. Well, the thing I'm is too, because these <laughs> days you want to travel light and you want to, um, you know, do it efficiently. Exactly. And that saves you travelling a whole row case full of pedals. Well, totally, because um, real estate on any, – anyone that plays guitar will know that real estate on your pedal board – is high-class shit. Uh, you don't put pedals there unless you need them. And you want your pedals to be a little bit spaced out as well so that your feet don't accidentally hit the wrong pedal, especially if you're a singer. So if there's any way you can take pedals off of the board and have a bit of space, it's worth every penny. It's gold. I was talking to um, um, Andrew Stockdale recently, and he travels even lighter. He travels without amps. He somehow manages to run things through like a preamp box or something which still gives him the sound yep. of what he needs to play those crazy guitar solos, but he doesn't actually need an amp. Yeah, I, I know what he – I did a show with him a couple of years back and he rocked up with a, a little case that was, it was, it wasn't even a road case and it was a small little thing and it, that was all his sounds in that. And he showed me how it worked and I went and bought one. I've got one too now. They're great, except in the Super Jesus, they won't let me use it because they're so old school. <laughs> they like it like that. They're like, no, no, we are using Marshall JMPs and and classic – straight fronted green back Marshall quads. There's no one's changing that. Okay. Well, if you want to carry it, but um, I have this, I have that same thing for my, for my solo thing. It's just all on the pedal. It's great. Yeah. That's on the pedal board. Well, there yeah. you go. And, and you don't have to carry amps. Just and, put it through the PA. And during COVID you were doing, um, you know, all the solo shows and you were doing the, the light acoustic stuff. And then your, your, you know, electric show as well, all in one. And, you really adapted mm. so well to a pretty shitty situation. Um, we, you know, you're doing gigs and trying to do them it, and trying to book them. Yeah, I, I sort of um, like if it was if this place flooded, I would develop webbed feet. I'm good like that. I'm like, okay, what's the situation? What do I need? And I just adapt to my surroundings. And so I just sort of found a hole in the market. What do I, you know, I can play acoustic shows. I can, I can play. Um, I can't play in a band because my band is too far away. And with all the restrictions, it's too hard to get to the band. So then I worked out how to play to sound like a rock band as a solo artist because then I could play festivals by myself. But then if it was a small gig, I could play acoustic. Then I learned piano. So if I'm in a piano bar, I can play piano. So it's like I'll just learn what I need and then I can keep working in any sort of form. It's insane. It is so well. And, and actually, you know what? It was tough on the artists because often I think you had to do a couple of shows per night just to try and break even. Um, yeah, yeah. We were all doing that. There was afternoon shows and evening shows in the same place because you could only have half capacity. Yeah. Yeah. 
But we're also grateful to see some live music at that particular point in time too. So we, we just were so happy to get a seat. And um, I mean, there are a couple yeah. of times, you know, weird situations where you're seeing a loud band seated with a table. But, you know, we just want to see some music. It was so good. I know. I mean, there's good and bad things to it. Um, it's bad because I guess the vibe is not as tribal. Um, but the good part about it is that you can sit down and relax and have people bring drinks to your table and, you know, enjoy the music without having to feel like you have to participate. Um, and and also, like for me, I was finding myself playing in really big venues that I normally wouldn't be able to fill because if I was in the band, maybe, but solo, I'd play much smaller venues. But suddenly I'm playing these big venues because they're half capacity. So I get to use these huge PAs and big lighting rig and, everything, and you know, all the road crew. I'm like, okay, cool, I'll do two half-capacity gigs here. Like, it sounds amazing. And that was good for my ego. <laughs> totally. I mean, imagine like, oh, you know, I just sold out the Inmore uh, twice. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> There's something cool about it, though, yeah. um, you know, with, there were some venues that we had the buzzer. So, yeah, you could have drinks brought to you through the show without having to get up. And that was it's really – like gold class. It was like gold class. It was so good. I mean, that was the only, you know, you know cool thing about it because, um, you know, it was always a, a, a small crowd. But – I love that. I saw Tumbleweed at the Paddington RSL, I think it was, upstairs. And it was so weird seeing Tumbleweed, really loud about it, in a small room, seated with yeah. tables and just being blasted. Like they were full volume. It was it was the same as as they would be in a in a in a massive pub. Yeah. Um, of course. Why would they turn it down? Exactly. You know, when when we first started, Tumbleweed were my um like yardstick of, of what I wanted. I was like, I just want to be as big as Tumbleweed. I was really into Tumbleweed. I thought they were from America. I, I put them in the same category as Soundgarden. Tumbleweed, Soundgarden. And then I realised they're from Geelong. And I was like, wow. And then I met them and I'm like, wow, now they're my friends. <laughs> cool. And they were actually stoners, you know. <laughs> so that yeah. Was- <laughs> they weren't lying about Mary Jane. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> they were the real deal. Um, but it's true. They I, had- I really like Richard. He's a great guy. Then, I remember being yeah. so excited one night. He came up to me to show and he said, that song, Saturation, that Super G song, was great, great hook. Great hook, dude. Great lyrics. And I was like, really? Really? Thanks, Rich. Fuck. I've, I've never forgotten it. It was my <laughs> first compliment from um, a peer that I really respected. And, and who else has come to you like that in the past? You know, so someone who you, you least expected who's actually um, said that. <laughs> um, oh, Courtney Love came up to me one night and gave me some sort of backhanded compliments um, that the show was great. Um, and then started telling me how to write hooks, which I, I, she was saying that she liked the songs, but then started telling me how to write hooks, which was pretty much regurgitated information that Billy Corgan had told her. Cause it was straight after she had made celebrity, um, yeah, celebrity skin. Um, and she was saying it's the space between the, the space between the phrasing, you know, it's what you don't say, the hooks, you've got the hooks, you need more hooks and she was like spitting at me and yelling at me she's like right in my face like this and I was like okay lipstick was everywhere <laughs> she's fagging on <laughs> like, yeah okay okay thanks I'll go home and work on the hooks <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. batshit crazy but but scary as hell but um but yeah it's true I mean Billy Corgan wrote all the great hooks for that album and and you know totally yeah and she just she just learned all these tricks so it was fresh in her mind <laughs> yeah. So she's passing the baton, which yeah. I appreciate. I think that's lovely. You know, there you go. But I mean, who do you want yeah. to work with? Is, is there someone now you'd, you'd, you know, of a similar real kid you'd love to team up with and do something with? Ah, uh, oh, it's interesting. Um, well, I, I, I've sort of rock and roll wise, I'm, I'm sort of happy what we're doing with the super Jesus, but 
Solo-wise, solo-wise, I want to hook up. I don't even know who I particularly want it to be yet, but I want to, I want to introduce a bit more of an electro trip into my solo. I've, I've, I've written a whole solo album and it's all written on piano, but I did a, um, I did a, an online songwriting class with Ryan Tedder. Do you know who Ryan Tedder is? Yeah, he, he was One Republic, but has just collaborated with so many of the biggest artists in the world. Isn't it become probably the, the biggest songwriter right now, hasn't he? Yeah, so he's my favourite. So he's, yeah. he would be my um, number one wish list to work with, Ryan Tedder. I fucking love that guy. And I learned so much from that online course. Like it went for six weeks. I learned so much. Like I want to do it again so I can rekindle my brain with it. But um, it made me rethink about how to do the whole record. It was really inspiring. Yeah. Ryan Tedder. Ryan Tedder. And when you do those sessions, like, uh, you know, some people couldn't do them because the, the ego would, would hold them back and they'd be like, no, nah, I'm God's gift to writing rock and roll. <laughs> I don't need to, you know, sit down and TED talk and learn how to write music. But um, Oh, I love it. Yeah, I, every thing. time I write a song, I learn something new and there's so much to learn. Like, I feel like I don't know anything. There's so much still to learn. It's ridiculous. Yeah, it's, a, it's the best attitude to have because if you stop learning – Anything, whatever job you're in, um, you know, you may as well yeah. give it up. But it's just, it's just totally, and wood. and it's exciting. Like if you, if you still, if, to me, if I thought that I knew everything, then I'd be like, oh, what am I going to write? But because I know I there's so much that I don't know, I'm thirsty for knowledge because then it makes me think there's something I haven't tried. Good that you know I can get better. There's there's so much scope for me to do cool new things that I'm not doing. So the world is my oyster. You know, it's, it's exciting to me. Um, I saw um, Jane Gaze has put a book out all about the '90s sound as ever, which is really cool. Have you got a copy of it yet? <laughs> you do. You just can. arrived in the post. You just today. arrived in the post. There, there you go. And yeah. I mean, the '90s was such a fertile time for Australian music. Do you agree that that it really was just the greatest decade of of, of rock and roll? Well, I feel like it was, but I mean, that's probably because I was involved in it, and to me, it was exciting because you know. Everything, everything was coming alive, and I was involved in it. And like my life changed, and I loved all the bands that we toured with. And it was a real gang, you know. Every everyone hung out together. We were the big day outs would all tour around. So we would not only would we play lots of shows together, but we would tour that show together. So we'd be at hotels together, you know, like on the road together. And you know, you don't we don't really get that so much these days, unless you're doing a you know one off tour with a band. But to have like, you know, 15 bands on the road together. And, you know, year after year after year, like the big day out, for me, the 90s was all about the big day out. That just changed everything. What was your first big day out like? Um, our first big day out was only about two months after we first played live. Wow. And we played on a small stage right before Front In Loader. Um, was it like 90, 97, I think? Oh, no, sorry, it must be 96, 96. And um, uh, the front end loader's manager was there and they saw us and they signed us straight away. And then like, like a month later, we got signed to Warner's. And then the, the next year, we were playing the main stage at the big day out with like, um, I think that was the Soundgarden year. Or was it Marilyn Manson? Marilyn Manson and Hole. I can't remember. I don't know. But we after that, we just started playing on the big stages. And um, the vibe on those gigs was amazing. Like the the way they would have the backstage situation was like so mid. Like they looked after the bands so well. They had swimming pools and 
like they would bring in exotic animals for the international people to like, oh, look, a koala, you know. They really went to town. <laughs> well, that's why they kept coming back. I mean, that's, that's the great thing about, you know, music promoters and relationships and, um, you know, if you created mm. a great vibe backstage. And, and it was recreated all the way through, you know, around the world. And, and look, they might have taken some inspiration from other festivals in the States, but you look at Lollapalooza and, and, you, and you see Lollapalooza, big day out, it never really yeah. got, got any bigger than that. Hey, I watched that documentary the other day about that um, Woodstock that they had oh, a couple yeah. of years ago. Have yes. you seen that? Oh, it's it's so. Oh bad. my god! Yeah. Oh my god! I didn't know. I didn't know that happened. I must that passed over me. I was obviously doing something else. I'd never heard of it. I saw it on Netflix. My jaw was on the ground. I can't believe it. I couldn't believe that people were such like thugs well, that they would do yeah, that. It was it was that's the thing. It was an interesting doco because it wasn't just about the disaster of, of, a, of a music festival run badly, but it was also a kind of an observation of what the kids were like going to gigs back in sort of 99 or whatever it was, you know, like, like it was, it was the music yeah. was a bit thuggish and, and the vibe they was put They worse. line up that they put together. Yeah. They put a really thuggish lineup together. They were like, let's just pound them with like masculine energy band after band after band after band until they all want to kill each other. Like what a yeah. <laughs> what a move, and you, you look at that because I kept thinking I just when I watched it I had just come from the Monday Monday bash, and I was thinking what a strange comparison like look at these look at these kids they're just ready to kill each other, and um the, everyone's so angry and the energy is so angry and then I looked at where we had just been and everyone's just so happy and loved up and looking after each other and and generous and it's like wow that's I mean I know it's, they're a bit older at the Monday bash but certainly a different scene hey. Massively different scene, and look, you know, uh, Woodstock '94 was my first um, kind of um, live album I ever bought because I think I heard it on Triple J at the time, and I was looking in at the photos and the sleeve, and Woodstock '94 was was pretty crazy as well. It wasn't like anything, anything near Woodstock '99, but it was like just mud, and people were just taking drugs and sliding down the hill in the mud, and you know, yeah. But what's, have, what's the one I'm talking about with with the that? Um, the bad one that said fire. What, what year was that? That, that was 99. That was 99. So and that was the last one? Well, they tried to do the anniversary one a few years back and it, and it didn't um, It didn't happen because um, – How's the way they did it at an Air Force base as well? Yeah. Like, that's, you know, that's you, not fun. If you do Woodstock, no water. it's, it's got to be at Woodstock and, you know, you have to yeah. do it. You know what the problem is? It's because they're all on the wrong drugs. Like back in the original Woodstock and everyone's on LSD and they're all just like, yay, free love. Yeah. Then the government were like, take the LSD away from them because they're, they're um, you know, they don't want to go to war. So then everybody starts cooking their own drugs and then they're all on some God knows what, they're on ice and shit and they're beating the shit out of each other and setting the place on fire. That Wrong is the drugs, problem. Man. Give them all weed. Yeah. It's okay. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Keep so, it real. Tell you what though, <laughs> speak about doing gigs at Air Force bases though, I went to um, – I think it was the only sound wave to ever happen at Eastern Creek, which um, oh wow, which is like an iconic sort of venue for Guns N' Roses, and I think um, I think Metallica or Bon Jovi played there back in the day, maybe. Um, but it was um, yeah, Eastern Creek uh, for sound wave was one of the hottest days on record, and they'd run out of water, and um, it was just a disaster waiting to happen, but luckily it didn't happen that badly. People were just taking shelter under boxes and there was no trees. Oh, it was just, you know, insanely crazy. Oh, 
you know, I went to a Guns N' Roses concert at Calder Park in Victoria. Oh, yeah. And um, it, was, it was the same thing. It was like um, I was, God, I was just, I was straight out of high school. I would have been 22 or something. And um, they, there was, they said, nobody drive out here because there's no, not enough parking. So everybody take these buses. So we all went out on buses. And then when we got there, first there was, um, first there was this big sort of windstorm. So everyone was covered in dust. And then there was, and then it poured down rain. So then it was all mud. So it was super uncomfortable, but whatever, you know, it's rock and roll. But then at the end of the night, they closed the roads and they stopped all the buses. And people were just walking around in circles with police on horseback, just going this way, like guiding them nowhere. Like it was, it was really scary. People were like um, getting attacked. And I, I ran, I found someone in a car. I went up to a random in a car and leaned into someone's car and went, if I give you a hundred bucks, we drive into the city. And then went, yeah, let's go. And me and my girlfriend jumped in and we were like 22. And then he started driving to the forest. We're like, where are we going? He said, not going to the city. He said, drive, drop someone off. We eventually got back to the city. But in the next day on the radio, I was still hearing that people were stranded out there. Like it was a, it was an absolute disaster. Festivals can be very hit and miss. <laughs> oh, yeah. oh, yeah. And look, Chuggy still talks about that one. I mean, the Sydney one was was pretty good in the end. Um, they, they lit fires with all the, the Coca-Cola cups, but that was the worst that happened in Sydney for the same Guns N' Roses mm-hmm. tour. But um, the- Large col- groups yeah. of people, dangerous. Oh, completely, completely. Don't you reckon? I do too. Like, I mean, I, I, love, um, I love being up the front. For, for a band, if it's if I can sort of squeeze out, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me, get down the front, jump around a little bit. Okay, excuse me, I've had enough, going backstage, get a drink. I'm cool with that. But those situations where you're talking like giant crowds where you go down the front early and then you're trapped down there like, and the only way to get out is to crowd surf your way home, I find those things terrifying. And some I've done it was Muse. I went right to the front and um- – it was because I had a girl, a girl who was dragging me to the front, and I was like, "Okay," and but I never felt that that feeling before of just being kind of at one with the whole crowd. If you you can't move against them, you just got to move with them, and um, you got to move with them. Yeah, yeah, you can't you can't repel. And um, sometimes, have you ever had that feeling where they tip you, but your feet can't move because you're trapped? Yeah. But you feel your head like swaying one side. Oh, 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 and then the crowd pushes you back. You know, oh, I'm good. Oh no, I'm not. You go the other way like a pendulum. Oh. I don't like that at all. I'm too old for that shit. And that's, and that's why it's like so important. Everyone looks out for each other, and, and if someone falls, down, absolutely, they, they they usually get them back up. But uh, or the band stops, yeah, which as well. we're really good at in this country. Yeah, yeah, um, but, but you know, not not so much in other countries. Every man for himself. <laughs> so you've you've done a lot of touring, and I, I was thinking back to 2015 so um, when you almost lost your your drummer, Mick Skelton, and I remember this because I remember getting the phone call and. And yeah, and hearing the news that well, first of all, I heard someone had died, and and I straight away went, "Holy shit!" You know, like like one of the guys, and it was tragic, obviously, because a crew member died. But Mick was so bloody close, and 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 and, and mm. I think you and I talked talked about it as well. And he, we're we're still amazed he's around uh, after that the injuries he sustained, and you must have felt like you'd lost him at that point. I totally, it's just fucking horrible. Um. The thing is about Australian touring is that there's just so much driving. Like in like in, in Europe or in America, they, they do a show and they drive like three or four hours and they're in the next city and they do it again. But Australia, you've got to you play your show and then pack up your shit and then sometimes you got to drive for like six hours to the next place. And it's, it's actually quite dangerous. I've been thinking about this a lot. Like in, it's interesting that you brought that up because 
I just did a show in Warrnambool the other day and that's where Mick's accident was and we were driving there and I was driving and I was at a car full of people, car full of actors because I'm touring a play at the moment and, um, I, and it started raining and I was like, oh, I don't like this, I don't like this and these, the roads are bad and, and I didn't say anything to them but inside I just wanted to pull over and go, can we just get a chopper I don't, or can I just go home? I didn't want to do the show but I just sort of got on with it and did it but I had such like, ugh, you know, uncomfortable vibes but you just we, we don't have a choice you just got to do it but having a, a mate who went through that really you know brings it to the forefront when when you're in that situation so you know sometimes ignorance is bliss just go oh, great let's go but when you know when you've seen it happen to somebody it does make you pretty nervous and he's drumming yeah. better than ever though i don't know how he does it it's he's, he's better drummer now than it was before <laughs> And I, and I remember we hung out together, you know, at your place a couple of times. Um, I remember there was a yeah. guitar exhibition I think you and I went to. It might, might have been a Gibson thing. And, and then all of a sudden we ended up having drinks at your place. Uh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, that was in um, – the, the exhibition was in King's Cross, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, and then, and then, yeah. Yeah, that's right. And you lived just down house. the road at, you know, near your old place. So. Yeah, in um, Darlinghurst, yeah. But hey, your house looks nice, by the way. Oh, thank this you. This is your joint in Canberra. See, no one can it's see really this. Lovely. This is my joint in Canberra. This is um, my bookcase with a whole bunch of books I haven't really read yet. Um, it's a woman's touch, honey. It's a woman's touch. <laughs> <laughs> but they're there. I'll get around to it one day. Yeah, that's right. You don't need to read them. It's the idea of the books rather than the literature itself. Well, it's also the hunt as well. It's about going to bookshops and going, you know what, i got to buy that. And, I, and then you buy another one and then you buy another one and then all of a sudden – Oh God! You know you, you you got fifty, and you just got to think. I got no time to sit down and read them all, and I still haven't finished the Dave uh, Grohl book yet. And that's that's the the one book that's my to do list right now is finishing his book. Oh uh, yeah, I, I would have thought you would have read that ages ago. It's I, right I, up your alley. I bought it the the week it came out. And I still haven't finished it. It's just terrible. So you, you you become a bit of a thespian. You've you've done the you know, the American Idiot shows and and. Jane Eyre and yep. yeah, Jane Eyre. We are a um, hundred shows in. I've done a hundred shows with with that production this year. Wow, so many shows. I know it's great though. I'm not sick of it. I actually really enjoy it. It's 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 a huge production and it goes to two and a half hours and the whole thing sets fire and like I'm I'm on. There's only four of us in it and we all change characters and I'm on pretty much all night and I sing and I act and then I sing and I act more and sing and act and play piano. It's intense and at the end you're like oh. God, I need a wine. It's definitely sending me to drink. Oh, of course it would. Yeah, because that's the thing. After all that time, you need, you need something to, you know, just to decompress yeah. afterwards. And, and um, I mean, a lot of screaming. Yeah. <laughs> and have you managed to avoid COVID, by the way? Like, because, like, um, I mean, when you're around all these people, and, and it's kind of almost inevitable you get it eventually. I have, have pretty much, and yeah, I, I mean, I had it really briefly on New Year's Eve this year for like two days. I didn't really feel it. And I've been around people constantly since and I haven't haven't had it. So, like, I don't know, touch wood, yeah, see what happens. Yeah. We actually had a bet in the play that whoever didn't get it, um, everyone would give them um, 200 bucks each. And then everyone in my um, cast got it except me. And they keep trying to give me the money. I'm like, just wait until the end of the tour because we're still touring to November. And if I, if I get it between now and November, then you can keep your money. But if I get to the end of November... You guys better pay the piper. <laughs> That's a serious payday. That is awesome. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm in pretty good nick, you know. I managed to not get sick, so touch wood. I feel pretty good. It's kind of changed the way you, you tour now because um, I, I was talking to Tim Friedman on the podcast uh, you know, a couple of months back and he was saying how the old days of, of, of you go to a bar 
or many bars when you're on tour, but now you really have to put the whole band of the bubble if you're on a short tour just to protect yourselves and leave that's, the party until the end. That's completely not what I'm doing. I've been partying in every tiny country town. I've been going to like, I've been dancing in nightclubs. I went to Goulburn nightclub and danced till 3 a.m. And then the next night I staggered out after the show and found some cover band. I was boogieing at the cover band with all these old people. The next night I found another acoustic guy. Like the, the, the whole cast is just party machines. And all we do is just go out looking for trouble in all these little country towns everywhere we go, night after night after night. Like I'm having a break that I'm home. I'm like, thank God. I get an early night. No dancing for me. <laughs> yeah, that's that's great because I mean the thing is to um, yeah, it, it's always a bit of a gamble because you know if you lose a show or, or a, a seven days worth of touring, you know, as an independent yeah. artist, it takes a bit out of you. Um, yeah, and- I know, but I I don't know. I've just kind of got this just see what happens vibe, and um, it's so far it's worked for me. Just yeah. just pretend it's not happening and just be normal and have fun. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly right. Now, now, we almost went in a video clip together, and and I, I actually kind of regret it. I was a bit scared at the time because you wanted me to to dress up in drag and to be your your drag queen for your your then video clip, and I I did, and I was in full rock and roll mode back then, and I I, I actually regret it now. It would have been a lot of fun, but I I went yeah, oh. you blew your moment. I, I blew yeah. my moment because I was like, you know what, I. My mates are really going to going to you know give it to me after seeing that video clip, and then <laughs> no, my luck it'll be a number one hit right around the world. Yeah, when you get a chance to be in people's video clips, come on. That is so true. Don't worry, I haven't given up on you. I'll try again next time. I'm doing some sort of fancy dress situation. We know what after that. I I I said yes to everything pretty much from that moment onwards. Actually, I was saying yes to as many gigs as I could go to. I think I went to like two hundred different gigs in a space of like a year and a half before COVID luckily. And I started saying yes to everything in any, you know, in, yeah. get an invite. Yes. Career things. Yes. And, 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 and it was actually, yeah, it was such a big um, regret because it would have been a heap of fun. Do you know, I always say yes to everything and then I work out how I'm going to do it later. Yeah. I'll just go, yeah. yep, no worries. I'll do that. And then I think, Oh my God, what have I got myself into? You know, and I do have last minute panics and sometimes I have regrets, but you know, it's, it's always easier to get out of it than it is to get back into it. Yeah, well, one thing I've realised, you know, a lot of people say um, or, or chase jobs that they're not qualified for, that they aim like one little bit higher than what they think they're good at and they end up getting yeah. it, you know, and, and this is the thing, you, you can never doubt yourself. Um, no, don't doubt yourself, just go for it with reckless abandon. Yeah. You probably had a lot of mentors over the years, I'm assuming, but, you know, what's the greatest bit of advice someone's given you? What someone personally has given me or like a bit of advice that I've picked up along the way. I I think like well, as an example, um, um, Vance Joy got advice in, in you know, Vance Joy got great advice from Michael Gadinsky about um, his first two years of, of of working in the biz, and it was more or less saying, you know, gig as much as he can, do as many gigs as he can, meet as many fans, and do as many radio things as you can do in your first three years. But I mean, um. I'm sure you've had yeah. men- mentors who've given you something like that. Like as far as the songwriting thing, this was the best one I ever heard. And a, a producer, um, Steve James, once said to me that this was a trick that um, that Peter Gabriel used to use. And you go through, when you write your lyrics, you go through each line and you've got to rate it, every line on a, as a standalone thing and part of the story as a number from one to ten. So you, once you've written your song, you go through and you, you rate each line. 
in your heart of hearts, is that the best line for the story? Can I write something better? And in my heart of hearts, what is that from one to ten? And if you start seeing things that, you know, numbers that are less than five, you get rid of them and you, you've got to keep facing the dragon until you can make it all, like at least seven per wow. line. Mm, that was really, really good information because I would have like good lines and there's always filler lines just to get to the next line. And then I started going, no, every single word is important. Every line is important. There's not a lot of, like, it's not like a book. You write a book, you can blab on and on and on. You write a song, you've only got, it's high-class real estate. You've only got a few lines to get the message across. And so everything you say is really important because you can't say that much. And, of course, Courtney Love gave the advice, um, you know, to work on your, on your choruses and your hooks. <laughs> yeah, she says, yeah, work on the gaps. It's, it's where you leave the gaps that's important. Yeah. Yeah, which um, is true. Songwriting is, is just, it's not an easy business and neither should it be because uh, when you think about it, if you can have one, one hit, and not even performed by you. It could be one hit you've given to Dua Lipa. You're set for yeah. life. It's it's just an insane business. I know. And to me, it's like this this endless sort of taunting thing, like this carrot that I chase. I sometimes feel like I'm one of those little dogs on a racetrack and I'm running around after that make-believe bunny or carrot, whatever it is that they, they put on the inside. And it's just moving around and, and I'm just running after it constantly because I keep thinking – you know, it could be it could be the next song. It could be the song after that. It could be could be tomorrow. Yeah, I never think that I have written it yet or that I won't write it. I always think it's just around the corner, and it keeps me on my toes my entire life. It also makes me stressed all the time because it's like un, unfinished homework that comes with me everywhere. I can never relax. And on that note, I have to say thank you for your time because that's that's some really really interesting stuff from you, and 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 that's and that's probably what keeps you hungry as well. Because look at you, you're still going, and and you. Love it, and you're so cool to hang out with, and um, you're one of my bloody good mates. So thanks for um, coming on podcast. Thanks, Brecco. Oh, it's good to good to talk to you, honey. And I really like your new joint. I can't wait to come over and make myself at home on that couch. The invite <laughs> is always here, and um, yeah, can't wait to have a drink beauty. with you again. It's always a lot of fun. But uh, but take care and enjoy your break too, and and we'll see you back on the road in a you know a couple of weeks. Thanks, darling. All right. Good to talk to you. Bye, everybody. Always. Bye. <laughs> See you, honey. Take care, love. There she is, Sarah McLeod for the Super Jesus. And very excited about some new music from them in 2023. Make sure you keep an eye on the writer, the writer pod on Instagram. And next week, well, it's a big one. This is the man behind some of the biggest albums of our lifetime, Cold Chisels East. He helped out with ACDC. He was in the studio and produced In Excess's Shabu Shabar and many more. In fact, five of their albums. Mark Opitz, genius producer. Next week, we'll catch you then. This is The Writer with Becco.